uh, from Psalm 1, well, it is Psalm 131. It's the whole thing, all three verses. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Uh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. I like that image in verse 2 where it talks about like a weaned child. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but a lot of times when uh, there's a baptism um, and mom's holding the baby, the baby's a little bit squirmy. And the thing that I've learned over the years is because, um, especially if mom is breastfeeding, uh, as would definitely be the case during the time of the Psalms, they know food is right there. And, uh, and so a lot of times they're kind of wrestling to get at mom. And then when I take them, the baby tends to like, boop, calm down. And they're like, oh, pastor, it's like, you know, magic touch. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and so um, when the child is weaned and no longer nursing, uh, sometimes then is when the actual peaceful, I get to hold my baby thing uh, happens. And, uh, um, and so that just that sense of being still and being calm and no desire you know, and, and all of those, those things. The other thing I find really interesting about this psalm and a lot of the psalms is the way that the psalmist talks to himself and then Israel. You know, it turns it outward to the, the whole group, uh, you know, to uh, in, exhort and encourage uh, in the Lord. Anyhow, uh, is there anything from last week that, uh, that you wanted to hold on to that uh, was worth remembering this week? Yeah. Ron and I had needed one word that the plagues were gods. Say it again. That the plagues were actually gods. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are all directed at Egyptian gods. And the other thing for me was my dad always preached there's no such thing as fear. And I never put that together with my salvation. Mm. And you brought it home in your sermon today when you said the righteous died for the unrighteous. Yeah. That's not fear. <laughs> no, it's not. Those are the two things. Yeah. Thanks. Larry? Uh, I was just thinking as I drove home that how good it is to hear God's word and to discuss it just like we're doing there's something um, I want to use the word healthy but that's not that's not a good word for it at all but there's something uh, that's kind of I guess joyful might be a good word for it and somehow um, when you're dealing with God's word you're dealing with God and, and the people around you it, uh, it brings a sense of, of joy I guess so you know that that's a good insight there. You know when you're dealing with God's word, you're dealing with God. Um, you know I think of John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Um, and then Jesus says, "Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst." You know, so this this isn't a a, a neutral opportunity of a bunch of human brains coming together. You know, God is at work through His word in us, and, and that is a, that is a good and blessed thing. Um, anything else? Then one quick announcement. Um, I am uh, going to do my tour of duty uh, with the uh, confirmation class coming up here. Uh, I will be in here next week, uh, but that will be the uh, last session um, for a while. 
Um, I think uh, uh, it'll be back in February, but I'm not positive. It actually says in the bulletin somewhere. Um, it's in the bulletin. It's been there for weeks. Um, but uh, um, uh, I'll come back, and my hope is that between this session and next week, we can finish Romans 9, and, uh, and then we'll pick up Romans 10, which is all part of that same kind of stretch of 9 through 11, uh, dealing with this Gentiles and Israel and all of this, this stuff. Uh, but come back to it when, uh, when I'm done with the kids. I think I get to do the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer with them, which I haven't done that in a while, um, which should be fun uh, for me, if not for them. So <laughs> um, we are on Romans 9, verses 25 and uh, 26, and we have ourselves a quote from uh, the book of Hosea, or the prophet Hosea. Uh, as it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. This means that we need to deal a little bit with Hosea. Uh, and Hosea is an interesting prophet. Um, uh, we have a couple of chapters of, of his book here in front of us. Uh, I don't intend to read it all word for word, but uh, a couple of things to know. Hosea was a prophet probably between 740 and 715 BC, which is a similar time frame as the prophet Isaiah. Smaller window, but a similar time frame. And, uh, and there is overlap. Now, Part of why this is interesting is um, Paul quotes Hosea to speak about the Gentiles, and then he's going to quote Isaiah to talk about Israel. You know, so you have these two prophets from the same time period. There are some important characters in the book of Hosea. Um, one is obviously Hosea himself. The next is Gomer. That's his wife. We're going to learn a little bit about his wife here in a moment. Um, then there is their first child, uh, Jezreel, who is named after a town. And then there is a, uh, a daughter named Loruhama, which is a really sad name. And then there is Lo-Ami. And before we get into it, um, whenever you hear that prefix Lo in Hebrew, that word means no or not. So these are very, I mean, obviously the negatives in terms of their names. Um, so the, the first few verses of, of Hosea are there at the, the bottom of the page. And, um, and then there's a whole bunch more on the next page. And we're going to walk through this a little bit. Um, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, um, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Notice you're already dealing with the divided kingdoms here. And, uh, and so you have uh, Jeroboam in the north and a number of kings in the south. I've mentioned that the, uh, there's an overlap with uh, Isaiah. Um, Isaiah's great vision in the temple begins in the year that King Uzziah died. 
You know, so you know, that's that, that time frame. It's a time of great change. Uzziah was king in, Israel, or in Judah for 40 years. I mean, this is a, this is a rock your world experience. It, it, all of the, the, the hoopla with the um, Queen Elizabeth dying, right? Now, imagine if the queen actually had real power and wasn't just kind of a figurehead. Um, that's that Uzziah. I mean, these are, this is like the only real leader that, you know, you know, that the nation has ever known. And then he dies. There's a lot of turmoil. Um, and when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Um, years ago, I went to a, uh, one of those uh, Christian men's rallies, and uh, the preacher preached on, on Hosea. And uh, uh, <clears throat> there are different styles of preaching, right? And there's a, there is a style of preaching that comes out of the African-American church. Um, and uh, the, the preacher was an African-American preacher, and he had this cadence as he was talking about it. And, you know, and I, I don't think I will ever forget because he, he put this into like this whole conversation where he was like Hosea talking to God. And, he, and he's, he's like, you know, God said to me, go get married. And I was like, yes, God. You know, and he, he's like, I'm, you know, I'm this good Jewish boy, and I'm, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, who should I marry? Because, you know, there's this girl over here, and I've got my eye on her, and she's really pretty, and she's very devout. And, and there's this other girl over here, and, and, you know, no, 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 not that one. No, 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 not that one. And, you know, and, and, and he's like, you know, um, 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 and God says, I want you to marry Gomer. And just literally, nothing. Because Gomer is... A woman of promiscuity, um, a, a, a woman of zunaim. Um, it means fornications. Uh, the King James translates this whoredom, which is a pretty fantastic word. Um, I mean, it's just so graphic. You're like, whoa, whoa, uh, and, and you know. So literally, she is a prostitute, and uh, um, and and this is the woman that. God tells Hosea to marry. And notice the way that this word is, is repeated in the text. Um, Hebrew poetry tends to repeat an idea, but what it, it tends to do is it tends to state it one way and then come at it and restate it another. Repetition is a big part of Hebrew poetry. If you read the Psalms, you will see this kind of this back and forth stating the same idea but using different words. But here, it's like God is almost whacking Hosea in the head um, with the, this particular word. And what he's doing to Hosea is he is turning him into a living prophecy that his life is going to become a picture of God and Israel, or even God and the church. And he is using this, this image of promiscuity um, within the marriage to, uh, to highlight this is, this is what it's like 
when God's people chase after other gods. The, uh, the promiscuity was probably associated with those other gods. It probably was, yes. Because I don't, I need to look, I don't remember, maybe you do. Was Gomer in the north? Because a lot of the worship in the temples was related to um, temple prostitution. All over. Yeah, all, yeah, yeah, it wasn't just them. In, in fact, when you go to um, uh, the story of Balaam and the donkey, right? Um, you know, uh, the king of Moab uh, hires Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites and uh, and the donkey speaks to him and all of this stuff and, and Balaam is unable to curse them and he's only able to bless them but at the end of the account he counsels Balak, the enemy king this is how you get them out of God's grace and pretty much it's invite them to church because Canaanite worship was you know, it was drinking it was drugs um, and it was, you know, sex and, you know so invite those good, you know, Israelite boys to show up for that, and they'll be like, well, because human. Um, and that is a big part of the problem that the Israelites had, you know, throughout their history. Um, this is pre-captivity. This is before they were taken uh, off to Babylon. Uh, the northern kingdom still stands, so it hasn't been taken by Assyria yet. You know, and so there's very much all of these types of things that are going on there, and she probably was a, a like a temple prostitute. What was going on in uh, Greek culture, uh, the beautiful Acropolis. Absolutely. Uh, and also uh, Roman culture. Absolutely. Yeah, no. Sex is a powerful driver for humanity, isn't it? And uh, uh, can be a huge temptation um, I was listening to a, a podcast. I don't know if I recommend it yet or not. Um, I've listened, only listened to two episodes. It's called um, A Brief History of Power. And um, so these are two Lutheran pastors. One's a professor from Concordia Fort Wayne. Um, the other is, uh, I think he's on KFUO and has a show on KFUO, the Lutheran radio station. Um, and uh, they got on this tangent about um, the First Commandment and it, when we talk about the first commandment, we tend to move immediately from you shall have no other gods uh, to you shall not misuse God's name. But the Reformed churches, uh, they go from you, know, you, you shall have no other gods to you shall not make a graven image. You know, connected ideas, right? You know, and uh, you can say, well, that's silly. Those are connected. Well, coveting and coveting at the other end. Um, that's what we do with it, so big deal. Um, and one of the things that... Uh, um, he, one of the hosts was talking about was this idea of um, why didn't God want images? And it was in part because people have this way of when they see things, worshiping it. And uh, they didn't go there, but it got me thinking about um, like pornography and the way that that gets into uh, people's hearts. You know, and it's through the eyes. You know, they see the image and it becomes something that their hearts bow down to. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, this, this is a big deal. Um, it was a big deal in Israel. I think it continues to be a, a big deal today in, in terms of, you know, how we 
deal with uh, sexuality as, as Christians and followers of Christ. So and, here's a, here, I'll push it even further. Thank you. <laughs> Is television a great enemy? I think you can make an argument. Now, when we, when we start thinking about like graven images, bringing it back into the context of God first, yeah. first we have the incarnation. So before we're, we're imagining what God might be like and making an image of that. You know, now Jesus comes and he comes as a man and so there actually is an icon, right, an image. Yeah. Okay. Now, bringing that into television, boy, yeah. It sure can be, can't it? You know, how often you know, do we just plop down in front of that screen? And as you think about, as you think about the television across the, uh, the ages, there's a pretty far cry between Leave it to Beaver and the Cosby Show and um, the Goldbergs, that's a, that's a more current one. Um, and uh, I don't even know what, what, what's out there right now in terms of you know, family entertainment. And that's to say nothing of um, the streaming services, which you know, are, because they are not uh, on public airwaves, are in a sense freed, quote unquote freed, uh, from um, any kind of censorship. And they can do pretty much whatever they want and do. You know, so yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it certainly introduces temptation into people's lives. And you know, I think about, you know, the way that that screen kind of glows in a dark room and everybody's just like, uh, you know, and I, but at the same time, I don't want to be completely, you know, nope, that's evil because in a sense that is a modern form of storytelling. And I think that we are a storytelling uh, part of creation. Uh, and some of what's being displayed there too is just humanity. And sometimes humanity is dark. Um, there are some legends out of uh, uh, the Norse, um, the, the Siegfried um, cycle. Are you familiar with this? Um, the, these are stories that you know, the Vikings would have told to each other. And um, it, it's related to Beowulf, but not directly. Um, these are dark and violent stories. Well, a lot of them. I mean, if you go to any culture. Yeah. Look at the fairy tales. You know, you tell kids of that. And, oh, is that what this is? <laughs> but a lot of times in the fairy tales, when you look at those, those are like... Those are like cautionary tales. Be afraid of the woods, don't go in the woods, you know? Yeah. These are a little bit different. You know, there's vengeance and... Yeah. Yeah, um, there, there's that in the fairy tales too, uh, but... Um, the brothers were great. Yeah, they're very good, very good. Um, but, uh, yeah. I heard one time someone say uh, that whatever you think about all the time, that's what you're worshiping. And, you know, I don't see any problem watching television. It's just thinking that it's something that um, you should be paying attention. I mean, it's entertainment, uh, just like any, any going to uh, a movie or 
going out to dinner. I mean, if you can, going out to dinner is the ultimate thing to do, maybe that's your God. Um, it's just that, that all of these are warning signs. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think the question is, what's it doing in your heart? And what, um, what's unique about television and, uh, and, and cinema are, are the way that they put things before our eyes that, you know, can very much grab at our hearts in ways that are not good for us. Right. You know, I mean, we do pray, lead us not into temptation, right? And I have consistently found that God does not lead me into temptation. But I'm really good at taking myself there. So... All right, so um, <clears throat> verse 3, he marries Gomer, and uh, they, they, they have a little baby girl. And remember, these are children of promiscuity, and so I think that there's probably always a question mark in the back of Hosea's mind, is this baby mine or not? You know, and that's, you know, that's part of the, the milieu of the, uh, the book here. And uh, uh, a little baby boy, excuse me, name him Jezreel. <clears throat> uh, Jezreel was a town in the north of Israel, um, it's a town that was known for violence. Um, and uh, uh, so when you think of uh, things that happened there, this is where Jezebel fell from the tower and the dogs lapped up her blood. You know, it, all kinds of, of, of bad stuff took place uh, in, in Jezreel. Um, you know, and so here's your first kid, Jezreel. Now Jezreel's not going to be mentioned in Romans. But uh, important to know, to, at least to some degree, that, she's, that he is there. Um, and then you have uh, another child being born. Name her Lo-Ruhamah, which, you know, that sounds really exotic to us, right? You know, um, but Lo-Ruhamah literally means uh, no mercy. Now hold on to that name, no mercy. Um, because we need to talk about that a little bit more uh, by the time we get to the end here. Um, Name her Lo Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by the bow, sword, or war, or by horses and cavalry. So there's a prophecy here of both law and gospel. You know, law and condemnation, you know, I am not going to have mercy anymore in the north. However, I am going to have mercy and I am going to rescue Judah. Okay. Uh, after Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. And Lo-Ami means not my people. Not my people. And what is at the heart and the core of what it means to be an Israelite? We are God's people. And he says, no. I mean, these are strong words. Um, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. They will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land, for the day of Jezreel will be great. 
Again, you've got this law gospel dynamic that's going on here. He's rejecting and yet saying, I am going to rescue. In the same place that they're rejected, they are saved. Where did God ultimately reject Israel? Or maybe it's better to ask, where did God ultimately reject all of humanity? The cross. Jesus stands in the place of all people right there to suffer the condemnation and the punishment for all people. And so when he says that in the place that they were told, you are not my people, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They will be called sons of the living God. This is all, you know, this is all kind of in here. And then, you know, it, it goes back through and it's more about the you know, back and forth between uh, Gomer and, um, and Hosea. I mean, this is, this is harsh stuff. Um, you know, Gomer runs off and, and uh, Hosea has to go and get her back, which means paying money into a, in a sense, buy her back. Um, you know, and uh, um, by the time that you get to the end of... Uh, of chapter 2 at verse 23 God says I will sow her in the land for myself and I will have compassion on Lo Ruhama and I will say to Lo Ami you are my people and he will say you are my God now Hosea is very much talking about um, Israel and these prophecies are delivered to Israel. And one of the things that, that Paul is revealing to us is that this isn't just about, you know, the northern tribes. This is about people. And he's using this to talk specifically about the Gentiles. You know, that the Gentiles are rejected, but, you know, they are not my people. They are, you know, no mercy by God and all of these things. And now they're going to be brought back in. And I want to be really clear that there is a sense of awe and amazement in this chapter. And this gets back to, I think, what um, um, Nancy was talking about earlier, that it's not fair. You know, just this kind of rooted in, you know, you know people seeing themselves in the privileged position, and I deserve the good things. And Paul saying, no, you don't. And the fact of the matter is that any of us are saved is pretty darn fantastic, and we really ought to be incredibly grateful for what's going on. So, so whether we're talking about the, the, the Jews or the Gentiles, salvation is by grace through faith. There's stuff like that earlier in the book, right? You know, and, and he's just continuing that, just in a, in a different part of the, the story here. And it's interesting that Paul reverses the order and he kind of adapts the text. Remember, in verse 23, you can see it right there above. I will have compassion on low ruhama. I will say to, uh, you know, I will, I will have compassion on no mercy. And I will say to, uh, not my people, you are my people. But if you look back at, at Romans uh, chapter uh, 9, verses uh, 25 and 26, he starts with, I will call not my people, my people. And she who is unloved 
beloved. And so what, what's going on here? Um, well, for, for one thing, I have no idea why he switches it around. Other than perhaps the sense of, you know, what he wants to emphasize is that the Gentiles are God's people. You know, that that's part of what he is wanting to get across. You know, that all of us together are God's people, including these people who were not his people, but now are his people in Christ. Um, but he could have done that the other way around too. You know, uh, this is one of those ones where I'm just not gonna argue with the Holy Spirit. I don't, you know, I, there are different theories out there, but none of them are actually compelling. But what is interesting is you go from this no mercy thing or, uh, to not loved. And that, when I first read that, I was like, oh, that's kind of like cheating. You're changing the words around. Uh, except that in the book of, of Hosea, when he talks about um, the Ruhamah, that Ruhamah part comes from a Hebrew word, uh, Racham, and that means have compassion, to take pity, to love. And so he is just emphasizing a different aspect of the word in order to get at another idea, the word that's in Romans, agape, which is also a kind of different kind of love than what we often deal with. You know, agape is the, uh, it's the root of God's attitude of grace and mercy. It's where he wants his best for all people, where he wants his blessings poured out on all people. And so what he's saying here is that um, there are these people who are not my people, and now they are. And just like Esau, and, and just like um, um, uh, Ishmael, um, unloved, spurned, no mercy, beloved. They've received the full love of God. And it's in the place uh, where they were told, you're not my people, that they be called, called the sons of the living God. It's in Christ. Yeah. I think one of the things God is trying to tell us in passages like this is that I'm not somebody that you can put the diamond in the thing and get exactly what you want. You cannot outthink me. You cannot figure me out. So just accept what is. Yeah. Um, so for those who are listening to this on the recording, because I know that there are some, um, what she said is, you know, our God is not the kind of God you can put the dime in and get what you want out of him. And, uh, um, you know, he, he or it, as C.S. Lewis would say, he's not a tame lion, right? Um, and that's actually a very interesting um, way of putting it, because when you look at uh, the second commandment, um, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, right? Or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember, the, what does this mean? Uh, we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, um, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. 
when it says use satanic arts or the way I learned it, you know, use witchcraft, you know, that always really kind of bothered me because that's kind of a first commandment thing. You know, I'm like, what is this? And um, I don't know the German well enough to be able to like pull that out. Um, but I was listening to a professor talking about that one time. And basically when it says you should not use satanic arts, you should not use witchcraft, it is this sense of what like Balaam did or what the witch of Endor did in, in 1st and 2nd Samuel, uh, where you are basically doing the thing that, you know, paying the God to do the thing for you. And God doesn't operate that way. Yeah, and, and this is what he was, what Paul was getting into just a little bit before these verses, where he talks about you are the, you know, you know the, the clay and he's the potter, you know. So God made some vessels for dishonorable uses and some for honorable uses. What's it to you? Yeah. Who do you think you are in regard to me? Exactly. You know, and, you know, and it's right there in the text, and I'm like, but I'm me. I, of course, I have the right to judge you. And God's like, yeah, no. So the overall sense of this section, it, 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 I really think that this is supposed to leave us rather thunderstruck. That we are saved. You know, to not be just kind of like, I, I think this is one of the challenges for us as Lutherans. You know, I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't a Christian. I was baptized, you know, it was, it was October of 1972. I was a month old. I don't ever remember a time where Jesus wasn't in my life. Um, I, I will say that across my life, I'm not sure that I always understood Jesus for who he is. And, you know, I definitely didn't always understand grace for what it is. But, but that being said, you know, it just, I think a lot of times we just kind of take it for granted of course I belong here because, you know, I was baptized when I was a baby and, and I think there's a similar thing with the Israelites and, and I think we're all supposed to be like, wow, God thought of me and rescued me because if we live in that kind of awe of God's grace, then that logically leads to gratitude and then because we've received this love, we love our neighbors. That's kind of first John. We love because he first loved us. And, and then, you know, leads us to mercy because we're people who have received mercy. You know, and all of these, these benefits of, of, of the Christian faith, these fruits of the Spirit start to show, you know, because of look at what God has done for me. I really think that this section, for us as, as Gentiles, is, it's like God is saying, uh, you think it's bad? You think that it's unfair that you know, the Gentiles are, are saved? It's worse than you thought. It's an absolute miracle that anyone is saved. Because no one deserves to be. And I think there's part of us that always holds on to the idea, I deserve I've done something. 
Anything else on, on, on those passages? And then Romans 9, 27 through 29. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, since the Lord will execute his judgment completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of armies had not left us offspring, uh, we would have become like Sodom, and we, have, and we would have been like Gomorrah. Um, I put a little mark right there next to the, uh, the Lord of armies, um, because that's kind of a unique technical term. Uh, it, it, it's actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word Sabaoth, which you might remember from way back in the communion liturgy, uh, Lord God of Sabaoth which when I was a kid, I just thought that meant Sabbath, and it's just mispronounced, and you know, it's you know, God of you know, the day of worship. Um, but that's not what that means. Uh, it, it, it literally means like uh, the general of the armies of the Lord. It's military type of imagery. So angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, and who's at the head? Christ, the Lord of Sabbath. Yeah. I went through that same thing, and I eventually decided Sabaoth must be a different word from Sabbath, but it, I'm not sure if it is. No, it's not. Yeah, you know, but that's the that's the same thought process that I had when I was, you know. But it's not. It's a different word, and it's a military term. You know, the host. You know, the general of the hosts. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, he is the one who leads the hosts of the armies of heaven. You know, and uh, and I that's maybe not an image that we're used to thinking of with God. Um, I think that uh, at least uh, in the modern church, a lot of times the way that we, we think about God is uh, kind of informed by some of these pictures of Jesus, kind of meek and mild. But he's not. I mean, he can be, right? You know, but there's a fierceness there and there's a power that's there. Um, you know, in the, uh, the Old Testament, he's, he's the God who rides on the storms. You know, you know, and it's like, but wait a minute, Baal's the god of the storms. He's like, yeah, yeah. He rides Baal and just drives him into the ground. You know, that's, that's the imagery that's, that's there. Um, you know, and uh, uh, I think of in the, the catechism again, because it's Reformation Day, so I got to reference the catechism again. Um, uh, Thy will be done. The explanation there, God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan of the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. And uh, I remember, I had to memorize that when I was a kid, but that really, that phrase didn't stick in my head. You know, that God's will is done when God breaks and hinders. And that's, I think, an awesome image that in our lives, God is breaking stuff, and he's blocking, and he is actively defending his people. Now, that might not always look the way that we want it to look. You know, God striking and smiting and, you know, because God has had mercy on us, and, you know, and he poured out his wrath on Jesus, so when we're dealing with other people, we're, we're dealing with people who need forgiveness, and we're led to that mercy with them. We always like to see other people get smoked. Um, but, uh, um, when it says he breaks and hinders, this is very much talking about like spiritual warfare. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get a little skinzy on some of this, where we, we have this tendency to re 
It is. And then contrast it to a God who is unchanging yeah. and omnipotent. Yeah. What does an omnipotent God need of an argument? What, how does an unchanging God actively get into your life? Um, and this sort of confused me. And yet this is the imagery that he chooses yeah. to speak through his prophets. Because I think because of our limitation, he's like, what are they going to understand? You know, and you know, and, and this imagery of uh, you know the Lord of the hosts of heaven. I mean, I'm not sure we think about the, the angels. You have two two different um, errors when it comes to angels. You think of them too much or not enough. Um, and uh, I think that modernly speaking, and you know, within Lutheran circles, anyhow, we tend to think not enough. You know, Jesus talks about, you know, the angels that protect children being, you know, where they see the Father's face at all times and, and, and these kinds of things and this idea that God is protecting us with these heavenly beings. Now, you can also get fixated on that and then they become like, you know, small idols in our lives and, you know, we try to figure out all kinds of things and, you know, uh, I saw a thing recently about angel numbers and what's your angel number and... I'm like, what is this nonsense? Um, it, it, it's just, yeah. Um, but um, but they're, they're real. And, and this sense that, that God has, has, in his design, put angels here to protect and defend us and to join us in worship. And, and all of these things, I, I find that to be rather fantastic. I was uh, I was once praying with some of the uh, the fellow pastors uh, here in Hudson, you know. So um, I know that there were a couple of Presbyterians, uh, non-denominational, uh, an Anglican, and uh, one or two others. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, um, when I was praying for the individual, I prayed that God would send His angels to watch over them. They were getting ready to travel. Now that's very much, you know, Luther's morning prayer, right? Send your holy angels to be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. You know, this is very much part of our, our piety and the way that we learn to pray. And um, at the end, you know, because we all took time to, to pray, um, they uh, were just chatting and someone says, who said the thing about the angels in the prayer? I was like, what? Somebody mentioned angels in their prayer. I was like, well, that was me. You know, and they're like, I've never thought about that before. That God has given angels to watch over us and to ask. Notice you're not asking the angel to do anything. You're asking God to use his servant to protect you. He's like, I've never thought of that before. This is part of our life of faith. God has given these beings to be part of our lives. Not that we interact with them, but that they're there protecting and defending and the like. That was an excursus I did not plan on at all. Um, so uh, there's a translation concern in, in this bit of Romans 
and in the, uh, the translation there in Isaiah as well uh, coming up. So in, in verse 27, take a look at that. It says, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. That word only is not there. That is an interpretive translation. Now, when he says that there will be a remnant, is that already kind of uh, um, eliminating some people? Is that kind of paring the tree, so to speak? Yes, it is. But I think that it's important to know that that only is not there um, because it's going to influence how we read this. Because though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, um, kind of puts it in, in this, this sense of um, there is this small subset and the rest of them are just, you know, they're, they're, they're completely out of it. Um, the, the, what it actually says is though they're as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. And I think that what it's, it's saying is that if the number of Israelites who fell under judgment are like the sand of the sea, and it looks like all is lost because they're about to be taken into captivity and it's going to look like everything is lost and everything is gone though everything is being destroyed as decreed and that justice is being meted out on this nation and they're going to be ground into the dust in this very hopeless situation i think god is injecting a word of hope there saying a remnant will be saved Yes, yes. N neither of which is in the text, but, right. but, but that's, you know, when you translate, you're, you're interpreting. You know, because sometimes these ideas don't come straight across into, into English, you know, the language that we're using. Um, and, uh, and so by putting the only there, I think, you know, you're putting a different emphasis than perhaps is actually there. It's more negative than positive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's going back to what I was saying earlier that we're like, somebody was saved. And it's us. Wow. And I think that we're just kind of used to the, uh, I don't think we're this crass, but, you know, yeah, somebody was saved. And it was us, of course. Who else would it be? Right, exactly. I mean, have you seen us? We're pretty great. <laughs> We have met the remnant, and they are us. Exactly. <laughs> so this quotes from Isaiah chapter 10. A little pogo there, I like it. Um, on that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, um, but the one who faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In other words, they've been living in slavery. And they're putting their trust in these, these human institutions that are actually destroying them. And their trust is going to shift from these other nations that are dominating them back to the Lord. The remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob, of the mighty God, to the mighty God. Israel, even if your people were as numerous as the sands of the sea, again, the word isn't there, only uh, a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed. Justice overflows. 
For though the land, for though the land, the Lord, for throughout the land, uh, the Lord God of armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. So that's that's the passage that's being referred to there. And then you notice that there's no nothing about Sodom and Gomorrah in there. Um, that actually goes back to Isaiah chapter one, verse nine. Uh, if the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, a remnant, um, we would be like Sodom and we would resemble Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, these cities are examples of complete depravity, violence against other people, oppression of the vulnerable. And Paul is saying, you know, or Isaiah is saying, and, and Paul's pointing back to this, um, he's using these words to describe Israel. That they have become depraved and uh, there's violence and there's oppression. And why is he doing that? Because he wants his readers to understand that Israel's salvation is just as much of a miracle as the Gentiles' salvation. So it's that, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I'm putting you right in the same boat. And if you don't believe you're in the same boat, I'm going to whack you between the eyes and give you the evidence to show you. You know, that's, that's kind of what he's doing here, I think. So... And we are right at time, um, so I really didn't leave you any time to, to think about this or talk about it with one another, uh, but I would do encourage you to spend some time, you know, is there anything in here that is helpful, challenging, or that you want to hold on to, um, something that's, you know, potentially able to impact your faith life? Spend some time thinking about that, talking about it. All right? Let's pray, and uh, if you've been to church already, I suppose you don't have to go to late service. Unless you're singing. Unless you're singing. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for time to be in your word. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would continue to work in us and that uh, the, this message of, of your salvation would really leave us in awe and lead us to gratitude and joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.